Every day, traders and investors dive in to tackle the ever-changing markets to find opportunity. Futures Radio Show is your number one source for answers to the questions that all market participants want to ask. Veteran futures trader Anthony Crudelli sits down with the most influential leaders and top traders in the industry. Now, here's your host, Anthony Crudelli. What's up, everybody? Anthony Crudelli here, and thank you for tuning in for this episode with Richard Metzger. Futures Radio Show is sponsored by CME Group, the world's leading and most diverse futures and options exchange. CME Group's markets help individuals and businesses around the world effectively manage risk. For access to free educational tools and resources for the active individual trader, please visit activetrader.cmegroup.com. Remember, everybody, new shows are posted on Mondays and Thursdays. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, YouTube, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a review on iTunes. This show is also sponsored by Trading Technologies, FTSE Russell, RJO Futures, and Top Step Trader. To learn more about some great offers that these sponsors have for our listeners, please visit futuresradioshow.com slash sponsors. Today, I spoke with the owner and founder of algorithmictrading.net, Richard Metzger. We chatted about his journey from being a programmer and a discretionary trader to becoming a quantitative trader, developing algorithmic trading strategies. Richard shares his process for developing an algorithmic strategy. We discussed his rules for backtesting and strategy optimization. And last but not least, he takes us through a trade example of one of his current algo strategies. So without further ado, let me take you right to the interview with Richard. Richard, tell us a little bit about yourself. So I graduated Boise State in 2001 with an electrical engineering degree, and I worked as a digital design engineer for um, really about 13 years, roughly. And um, and so, yeah, so I was basically a programmer and throughout that whole time I traded, but I uh, really didn't get into quantitative trading until around um, 2012 era. And so I, I ended up kind of moving away from the discretionary kind of trading into more uh, quantitative or algorithmic style trading. But but basically I was an electrical engineer. I worked in uh, at Intel, Vitesse, uh, Micron, a few, a few other companies. Um, and then kind of branched into full-time quantitative trading in around 2013 when I started this company. So you said you were a programmer initially and you were trading. What markets were you trading? Yeah, so I I traded primarily the NASDAQ ETF, uh, the QQQs, uh, the SPY ETF, but mostly equities is what I was trading, the indexes. And I I did focus on indexes for the most part. I, I don't I can't really remember if I ever really placed a trade on any uh, individual stock. It was primarily indexes. And now, what would you consider your style of trading? Yeah, so now I'm a 100% algorithmic trader, so purely technical. And uh, and we trade the futures markets. We trade the S&P E-minis as well as the 10-year note. We've also traded the uh, NASDAQ E-minis. Uh, but primarily, we we still I still just stick to those indexes. Only instead of trading the ETF, we trade the the E minis on those. All right, let's talk about how you got involved in this. I mean, you were a programmer, you were trading, and then you became 
a quantitative trader. Uh, how did this all evolve? Yeah, so when I was in college, I guess I'll start there. I, I did an internship in around early 2000, right before the bubble popped. I did an internship at a company out here in Boise. And so I was, I was an electrical engineer intern getting, you know, paid a decent hourly wage. But these engineers were, you know, just making bank on this stock that went from kind of like $3 to like 130 So that was the first time I was exposed to the market. And it, it really just piqued my interest. Um, I, I, uh, I love challenges. And so once I graduated Boise State in 01 and started working, I, I kept, I kept kind of dabbling in the markets and trading. And a lot of times I would trade just sort of on the side in my cubicle, you know, I'd have my laptop and occasionally place a trade, but I was a discretionary trader. So it, it was all um, purely based off of just sort of a gut feeling. And I really wasn't successful. So um, I, I got my, my butt handed to me multiple times uh, in that kind of 10 year period but I really never gave up. I, I, it just something about it really kept me engaged. I, I think it's just the nature of the problem is, is an amazing puzzle to try to solve. And so, um, so when I started hearing about quantitative trading, how people could, uh, you know, write code that would analyze certain patterns and, and, and the back tested results you could look at, it just really, uh, became clear to me that that's what I should focus on, especially since I was already a program, right? You know, writing code was, was easy for me. Uh, thinking in kind of an algorithmic fashion, you know, step-by-step came easy, debugging, all that. And so, so when I, around 2012, roughly, um, is when I started writing code for the markets. And, and I, I just had sort of these multiple aha moments where I realized that in about an hour, I could write a chunk of code that would analyze, you know, the previous 20 years of trades or 20 years of on the index and do all that work in seconds, you know, that would take weeks or months to do by hand. And so, so for me, that was just a really good fit. And I know there's, there's different ways to do the discretionary side, but for me, it, it just going purely algorithmic made the most sense. And so that's really when I finally started gaining traction and, and realizing that, that that was my wheelhouse, that I could be a successful trader as long as I did it in sort of a quantitative manner. How were your results as a discretionary trader? They were not good. <laughs> I mean, I had, uh, you know, there were various accounts that I, that I had blown through a couple times. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I just there were certain times where I, I had good runs, but for the most part, I would usually give it back. I was just not built to be a discretionary trader. I mean, most discretionary traders I know and that I've heard a lot on, on your podcast, you know, they're, they're disciplined. They, um, you know, they're able to kind of control their emotions a lot better. For me, it just was always really difficult. Um, I remember the flash crash uh very well because um i did ex- extremely well on on the crash uh we were short i think about 10 s p con- not we but i was short about 10 s p e-mini contracts but over the next couple of days i gave it all back and so that was kind of the the pattern um i just i, I really didn't do well. i was not profitable in that discretionary period for me so i'm curious what gave you the confidence that moving over to the quantitative side that you'd be successful there? Ooh, I love that question. So what, what did it was, 
I, I, I remember one of the first algos I coded was a very simple algorithm. Basically what it did is, um, is I was convinced that if you had a big gap up, that the correct trade would be to go short. So this is before I was a quantitative trader. I was a typical day trader that gap up, you know, you go short, put a stop just above the, where maybe where, where it opened. And then once it fills the gap, you get out. And that's, that's kind of what I thought would work. And I remember writing the code for that. And, um, and what, as soon as it did the first back test, I started realizing, wow, this, this just does not really back test well. Um, and, and there's a lot of things that go into this. I mean, it depends on the index, on where your actual entry is, where your actual stop. So I'm not saying that you can't do a gap fill strategy that would work. But for me, um, it just, I, I couldn't get it to work. It just didn't, you know, the, the back-tested results were horrible. So finally what I did is I said, you know what, I'm just going to go long and see what happens. And that was my first aha moment because what I realized is that the hard trade to make on a big gap up is to go long, at least for me. Most day traders are very comfortable going short, but, but buying into that kind of strength is very difficult. It was for me. When I ran that back-test, suddenly I realized, wow, that's it. Um, and that's, that's when I started thinking a little bit differently. Instead of thinking, I'm going to force my strategy on the market, I started thinking in terms of, I'm going to let the algo and the code do the hard trade, the trade that's really difficult to make as a discretionary trader, and just kind of see what happens. And, um, and you know, it's not perfect. I mean, there's, there's no such thing as a perfect system. But in that case, I started feeling like I wasn't fighting against the tide anymore and I was going kind of with the market um, as opposed to fighting against it, which I know is cliche, but yeah. So it was the back testing that gave you the confidence? Yeah, I would say the back test is what gave me the initial confidence. And uh, as anyone that, that does quantitative trading knows, back testing has incredible limitations. So I mean, it, it gives you, in essence, the most optimistic results someone could could probably expect. Um, although expect is too strong of a word, but on a on a first pass, yeah, the back test is what gave me the confidence. But what really did it was kind of seeing uh, seeing the trend continue, kind of a year later after the back test. So, in other words, after the optimization is done, and now you're in sort of a blind walk forward mode seeing those results are really what kind of clinched it. Um, and, and there's still emotions, you know, involved. I mean, you, you could have three losing trades in a row on that algo where you're going long on a, on a gap, on a gap up. But what, what, what the back test does is it, it gives you sort of a frame of reference. So if you then lose three trades in a row, as soon as you, as soon as you start that strategy, you can at least look at the back test and say, well, was there any other time where we lost three in a row? And, oh, yeah, right there we did. Actually, it happened 10 times. And here it, we lost six in a row. So it, it just gives you sort of a um, uh, kind of a, a ledge to rest on, I guess you could say. Yeah, I, I totally get that. Um, because when you go through those drawdowns, it's, number one, not a surprise. You know, so you're not changing course. You're not changing a strategy just because you have a drawdown. You're not searching for answers. You're like, look, this is part of it, and we're going to stick with it. That's exactly right. So let's talk about the process for developing an algorithmic strategy. Take us to the first thing that you do when you sit down and start developing one of your strategies. 
Yeah. So the, the first thing I do is I will usually begin with just some, some basic idea. Um, for example, you know, we can use that gap up uh, idea that, that we were using. So that, that would start with someone that has been staring at charts for a few years and, and you start just noticing, oh, what, what happens when you have a gap up? And so you might just start with some very basic code that would say, um, you know, if, if the open of the current candle is greater than 1% of the previous candle, then go long, else do nothing. And that, that's a very basic uh, idea of, of how you start. But you, you start by just writing some very basic code. But um, I should probably go back a little bit, though, because you also have to determine, well, what is this going to trade on? So for me, I focus on the indexes, the S&P um, primarily. And, and, and there's reasons behind that that I won't go into, but, but basically because it has the liquidity to support the, the program that we run. Um, but you, you, you also have to pick the time frame. So is it going to be on a daily candle, monthly, weekly, hourly, minute? Um, but once, once you narrow into that a little bit, then you actually write the code and then you, in essence, apply the code onto the chart. And, and you'll get an initial kind of flavor of what that, what that algorithm might be able to do. Um, and, and usually, you know, someone will add a stop, maybe a, a target of some kind. But once you have those kind of three things defined, in other words, your entry, your exit, and then any stop that you might have, then you just run a basic back test. You don't, you know, and, and I won't optimize them. And you'll just look at the raw results of what that does. And, and from there, then it can spawn uh, multiple different paths that you might go down. But that's the very basic way that, that I would start. And then what do you do from there? Yeah. So from there, it really depends. If, if the equity curve is just horrible, straight down, then one thing I, I might do is just flip it and say, okay, well, instead of going long, what happens if you go short? And then you run that. And eventually, let's say you get to a point where you have something, uh, some kind of an equity curve that's trending upward for the most part. That's when I'll start looking at it a little bit more carefully to see, okay, maybe there's something here. The other thing I should say, though, is I, I, I will, you know, you always want to back test as far back as you can go. Um, you know, if, if someone only goes back to like 08 or um, 09, 2010, then I, I'd be very skeptical of that algorithm. Um, you always want to back test as far back as you can go um, through uh, bull markets, bear markets and everything in between. So um, so so let's say you're, you're back testing to, I don't know, 2001. And you've got an equity curve that is sort of trending higher, but maybe still looks a little scary. That's usually when I'll go to the next step and I'll say, okay, there might be something here. So let me experiment with what, how big of a gap up do I want to go along with? Uh, and in this case, let's say we started with the short, the short was ugly. Then we switch it to long, the long uh, and going long, it's kind of going higher for the most part, the equity curve that is. And I might say, okay, what happens if instead of a 1% gap, you do a half a percent gap or 2% gap or, you know, and, and you start playing with those to see how it impacts the equity curve. But you always want to be very careful because the biggest mistake a quantitative trader will make is curve fit. You know, they'll, they'll basically uh, look for something so specific that really all they're doing is, is doing uh, a curve fit. And the reality is that that algorithm probably won't do well when it goes live. So, um, 
but that'll start the the sequence of okay so you might write in the code then or as an input into that algorithm a big of a gap up you want to to enter in on so that you can then start optimizing so you might have an input that would say um i don't know uh size of gap and and then what you can do is you can optimize it you can schmoo and it can look at a zero percent gap a tenth of a percent you know two tenths and, it, and you can you can start optimizing to see where where it makes sense to actually do that entry and that's that's kind of the optimization process which is really the next step i guess is you start optimizing it hey everybody a quick pause here to talk about FTSE russell they are a leading global provider of benchmarks analytics and data solutions the russell 2000 index is a key benchmark for small cap u.s stocks be sure to check out the e-mini russell 2000 index futures contract symbol r t y for more information on footsie russell and their products please visit footsierussell.com i want to talk about backtesting for just a second do you have any specific set of rules for backtesting i do yeah yeah so i will backtest as far back as i can i will um, always include uh, slippage and commission in the test we will um i'll also usually change the uh, modify the inputs plus or minus 10 percent when i do the back test so so really what the, the point of the back test is to just try to flush out what the potential of an algorithm might be so the goal is the developer is not to just have a pretty equity curve it's to try to really break your code it's to try to say what am I missing? Like what, uh, what assumption am I making that's not accurate or that, that, that isn't realistic or that won't hold up? Because really, as a quantitative trader, you still have emotions. It's just a different kind of emotion that you're battling. I mean, you, you have a desire to find this holy grail and you just have to resist that desire because if you're searching for a holy grail, you're just going to create a curve-fitted, um, over-optimized algo that's not going to do well live. But yeah, so the, so the other thing I'll point out, if if I have more than a couple technical indicators in the code, that's usually a pretty big red flag. So in other words, uh, going back to your question, what what parameters do I, do I go by when I do the back test? The other thing is I, I make sure that the code really shouldn't have more than two technical indicators plus maybe one other. Um, anything more than that, uh, you got to be very careful because more than likely you're falling into the curve fit trap in essence. Um, yeah, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. And it's also funny hearing a quant trader talk about having emotions involved in their trading. <laughs> I've been, I've been talking about this actually quite a bit lately on the podcast and on social media, how it's just impossible to eliminate emotions in trading. Uh, and for me, I'm an emotional person and emotions are involved in my trading period. I mean, it just, you and I aren't going to go into that today, but it's just funny hearing a quantitative trader saying that there is emotion still involved. I, I want to move on to the next step. Um, so we talked about the first two steps. And I think you said the next step would be what optimizing it now. Yeah. Yeah. So once, once you have the code done and you've got the chart set up, then the next thing would be to optimize it. And, and really what optimizing is, is think of it as if, if, we, if we continue with this kind of gap up algo, 
you might have a couple inputs on that algorithm. You might have the size of the gap that would trigger the entry. You might have the stop and you might have a target of some kind. So that maybe the target is S&P points. So, you know, it could be four S&P points or 100 S&P points. The stop, same thing, uh, you know, one S&P point or, you know, 17 or whatever you want to, whatever you want to start with. And then the gap up or the gap, yeah, the gap up trigger uh, could be any, anything that you want to use that's represented in the code. So what the optimization does, so think of those as inputs. What the optimization does is it allows the, the program to, in essence, loop through all these different combinations and try a stop of four points, five points, six points, and it'll just crunch the numbers and it'll give you kind of an, an optimization report that, that'll tell you, okay, it ran through every stop from $100 to $2,000 and it turns out $1,000 is the best stop. Um, so that, that's in essence what back testing is or, or op- optimizing the, the back test. Understood. At what point are you taking the strategy live? Yeah. So the, the goal of every algorithm is to go live, as you're saying. Um, to get to that point, there's really, there's, there's kind of a handful of stages that, that, that I will go through. And, and every developer is a little bit different. But I can say that most will follow something like this that I'll outline. So you start with the initial idea on a chart, then you code it, then you, um, and, and if it gets, to the point of where we were, where I was saying that it's, it looks halfway decent. So then you go to the next stage of now optimizing it where you're looping through the inputs. And, and what that'll do is you'll see the equity curve will get a little bit better. It might fix different things. There might be one feedback where you might notice, well, in the, in the optimization that this worked well, but there's still a problem here and you might add something in the code to fix that. But again, if, if you have to do that more than once, then a lot of red flags should go up because you're, you're walking into the over-optimization trap again. But let's say you get to that point where you've now got a pretty decent equity curve. You've optimized it. The next thing I'll do is try to break it. I'll try to say, well, what am I missing? So I'll change the inputs of the algorithm. If the stop it picked is 1,000, I'll, I'll try 900, and then I'll try 1,100 just to make sure that it doesn't break the equity curve, like, you know, that it's not all hinging on some really super exact point that if you change, everything is get thrown off. After that, what I'll do is I'll do a walk forward analysis typically. And and what walk forward does is just another stage where it'll, it'll kind of uh, back test in an in sample data period and then kind of walk forward in an out of sample data period. And that gets, that gets a little, complicated to explain how that works because there's sort of matrices involved in different ways you can define that. But once, once you get through the walk forward analysis, so if, if you've gotten all the way to the walk forward where the walk forward looks good and you've done everything you can think of to try to figure out what am I missing here, that's usually when I will, will allow it to go live. And so, um, and, and even that period usually is about a three-month period of, of letting it trade live before we, I really launch it as a product. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's kind of the sequence. How long from when you have an idea to eventually it goes live? What's the time that it takes? Yeah, so when I first started quantitative trading, and uh, it was 
pretty quick. I mean, it was, it, it would have been kind of like a one, one to two month deal where it, it would have all happened pretty quickly. I would say the last four years, uh, the design cycle is about a year long. So I'm incredibly slow to act on these kind of things. Um, yeah, so it's, it's usually about a year. Um, and, and that's a lot of that is just the waiting. It's, it's, it's really thinking as critically as you can about an idea. Um, the, the actual running the simulations usually, I mean, that really doesn't take that long. I mean, someone could actually just crank out an algorithm in a couple of days, really. Um, but for me, I'm just a lot more comfortable when I go really slow because I've, you know, over the, the course of my career, I've, I've coded well over 300 algorithms. And of those 300, probably 10 are ones that have made it to this live stage. And, you know, and if you look at the derivatives of each other, then, you know, maybe it's like 15 ish, but, but it's, it's a small number, you know, think of it as a big funnel and you're pouring all these ideas into a funnel and, you know, at every stage, more and more get filtered out. And you might have an algorithm that you're convinced is amazing, but then you do the walk forward and it's, it's broken or it doesn't work or, or it, it's clear that it's not, that it's not going to do well. And so, you know, you, you have to be honest about it and say, well, this just isn't going to work. Like I don't, cause, cause the temptation is to say, well, why didn't it work? Oh, because in 07, it had a massive loss. Well, what happened in 07, a big, you know, big, uh, bear, uh, kind of a bear market kind of, uh, characteristic, at least part of it. And so you might, just sort of rationalize, well, I'm not going to back test in 07 because if we go into a bear market, I'll turn it off. Well, no, that doesn't work. You don't know you're in the bear market until it's happened. You know, you can't, you can't just sort of wish away certain periods. You have to be very honest. And that's hard. That, I mean, that's where the emotions come into play on a quant trader, probably the heaviest. And that's why so many quant traders try to, you know, figure out how come my algorithm doesn't work when it goes live? Well, that could be a reason why is that it's just over-optimized or or it's not being honest about certain things. I think in trading, it's so important to be honest with yourself about where you really are. Uh, you know, I compare this a lot to, to golf. When I started playing golf and I was trying to get better at it, we're always trying to get better at it. And I remember, you know, I would have a ball that was, I'd be out there by myself and it was maybe not in a great line that I'd move it to a better lie and then I'd hit it. Well, when I got to playing into tournaments, you know, or money games, I wasn't playing nearly as well as when I practiced. And it was because basically I was improving my lie during the times I was practicing, basically just cheating myself for myself actually getting better and hitting out of that lie. That's why now, even the other day, I was actually in a competitive situation and I hit a drain that was right by my feet and I looked at the ball and they're like, you could take a drop. And I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to hit this. Um, you know, I, I don't like moving the ball at all anymore, you know, and it actually helped me become a better golfer and helped me, you know, during times when I was in situations where the lies were just terrible and I've been able to hit them, <laughs> you know, I think that just as a trader, you have to be honest with yourself. I think that's just, that's like rule. I don't know if there's any specific rules that I would put in number order, but that's like right at the top of the list. I mean, just be honest with yourself and where you are. It's the only way you're going to improve. Yeah, so true, so true. I, I want to move on and talk about some of the strategies that you're currently trading. How many strategies are, are you currently trading and which markets are you trading them in? Yeah, so we have four uh, systems that we offer right now. 
and then we have a, a handful of about three others that are capped that in other words that we don't that are still traded but we don't offer them anymore the reason why those are capped by the way is because they trade the nasdaq e-minis which um when i first started the company that's what we traded is the nasdaq and i was uh I guess I didn't really realize that the e-minis on the NASDAQ really are not that, um, there's just not a lot on the bid ask usually, you know, like 25 contracts by, by 25. So when we hit a point where we were trading a hundred, 150 contracts, uh, across all the, all of our different customers, we started seeing slippage. And so we, we had to take care of that. That was kind of the first kind of, uh, problem that we ran into in my company was, was adjusting for that. And we ended up solving it, um, and we had a really good way to do that. And so, and our NASDAQ customers now are, are doing really well, um, and they're still trading the NASDAQ, but that's capped. So the ones that we offer now are, there's four of them, and they trade the S&P E-minis and the 10-year note. And so the, the one thing um, when I was mentioning the going live, the other, the other part of this is think of, of each strategy as a kind of piece of of the broader puzzle of a system. So in other words, when, when I say we have four systems running, each system that we run, each of the four, trades a combination of these discrete algorithms that I was talking about. And so, um, so, it, so for example, the, the swing trader is, is one that's been running live now for over three years. And it trades two algos. It trades a momentum S&P algo that goes along the S&P. And then it also trades a momentum 10-year note algo that goes along the 10-year. And so we use the 10-year. In, in my company, I, I use it to help with kind of the down periods. Uh, yeah. And so because a big part of the way that I trade is, I think of, I, I basically, I break the market down into three possible states. It's either going to be going up, down, or sideways. And I define those uh, very, very carefully so that in the back test, there's an equal third of each of those. So in other words, a, a strong up market is up about 17 points for the, for the month. So if the S&P closes up 17 points or more, then that's considered strong up for me. And I, and I know this kind of can get confusing pretty quickly, but if, and if it closes down four points or more, then that's considered a strong down market state. And anything in between is sideways. And, and if you go back, uh, as far back as you can go on the E-minis, those buckets are equally one third of the time happening. And, and so then what I do is when, when I apply an algorithm into, or when I look at a system like the swing trader, I'll start with one algo, the momentum S and P algo. And I'll, and I put that in there and I'll look at it and say, okay, when we close, when the S and P is up 17 points or more, the momentum ES algorithm does very well when it's in the sideways state, it might lose a little. And when it's in a, um, uh, uh, down state, it might, it might lose more. And so then the 10-year note comes in and the 10-year note does very well in a down market and it does pretty good in a sideways market, but then it loses a little in an up market. And so you can almost envision these algos being overlaid on top of each other so that you have one combined equity curve that basically says, look, a third of the time, the market's going to close down four points or more. And when that happens, 
the 10 year note algo is, and these are numbers I'm just making up right now, but the 10 year note algo, maybe it's up a thousand dollars per contract traded. The S and P algo, the long one is maybe down $200 per contract traded. So net you're up 800. And then you do the same on the sideways and maybe the 10 years up 500 and the long S and P's maybe break even. So you're net up 500 in those States. And then when the market closes up 17 points or more, Maybe the long S&P algo is up $1,500 and the 10-year note is down, I don't know, 500 So net, you're up 1000 So that's, that's kind of the basic way that I look at the market. And that's, that's, that's how I assemble individual algorithms into a trading system. So, yeah, so we have four systems, though, right now. We have the wave trader that trades uh, two algos. The swing trader trades two. S&P Crusher trades five algos, and then the Pro Trader trades six algos. Hey, everybody. I want to take a quick pause and talk about RJO Futures. They are a longstanding brokerage firm with personal broker relationships to learn, discuss, and trade the futures markets. To learn more about RJO Futures, please visit rjofutures.com. I want to talk about if you would be willing to share how maybe a trade sets up in one of those algos. But before I even get to that, I want to first off say how simple it really sounds in in your thinking. I know there's probably a lot that goes to it, but the more I hear you talk about how you're developing these, it's it's nothing too complicated. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. In fact, if you line up... Um, I don't know, 10 quantitative traders and, and you line them up from, you know, one week experience all the way up to 20 years experience. And you ask them, you know, what's, what's the key to quantitative trading? I would bet that the more experienced someone gets as a quantitative trader, the more they think the simpler, the better. Um, Cause when you start out, you're thinking, Oh, I'm going to have this crazy algo that looks at every possible indicator out there and just is totally amazing. And that there's nothing wrong with that. And then there's probably people that do that with success. But my experience with that is that it doesn't work. You, uh, and then the more simpler the algo gets, the better it works. And that's because of our, the sequence that I explained earlier, once you get to the walk forward analysis, in other words, if you've got a, a really complicated algorithm, it's probably not going to do well in the walk forward analysis. So yeah, you're exactly right. The simpler, absolutely the better. I mean, if, think of it this way. Let's, let's say you and I looked at a chart of the S&P mini and we noticed that every time you have a red day, like a down day, if you would, if you would buy and get out the next day, you would make, you know, on average 1% every, every time that happens. Well, we would have no need to be any more complicated than that. I mean, that would be enough. So why we, why would we then say, oh, well, let's add this to it or add that to it? Now, um, yeah, so, so the simpler the better, because the simpler the better just means that it's going to be more robust. It's going to get through the walk forward easily. And, it, and, it could, and, and you might sacrifice the back. And, you know, the profit factor might be 1.5 instead of 3.7, but it's going to be more realistic. Now, we talked about your development of a quantitative strategy, an algorithmic strategy. Can you share with us, now I know this stuff is proprietary to you, so share with us whatever you're comfortable with, how a trade would actually get into the market, 
like a situation and then walk us through maybe how that trade, how that stop would be put into place, um, the reasoning behind it, and then where a potential target would be. Yeah, yeah, happy to. So um, if if we look at the different strategies that we're trading right now that we offer, the one of them, um, actually all of them, so all of them trade the same 10-year note algorithm. Um, and then the other ones trade, most of them, well, they all also trade some kind of a swing trade ES, algo, like in other words, a, a S&P algo that, we, we typically will buy it at the close and then get out either the next day or a week later. So I'll, I'll talk about the momentum S&P algorithm because that's, that's probably the more interesting one. The other, the other algorithms that are trade, remember the pro trader uh, I mentioned trade six. Well, the other ones on that one are day trades. So I, I won't really talk about those um, unless you want to, but, but on the momentum S&P algo, that's, that's kind of the bread and butter of, of what I do. It's the most successful algorithm I have. It's, it's been battle tested, uh, really going all the way back to 2013 um, with, with some disclaimers there that, uh, you know, we did do a, a reoptimization um, in early 2014. Uh, but yeah, so the momentum S&P algo, though, what it'll do is it'll basically buy at the close. So Number one, the reason why we trade the S&P is because it's incredibly, you know, it's, it's the most liquid futures instrument uh, out there for the most part. Or it's, it's definitely in the top, that, along with the 10-year note. But we, we do that. So when, when the market is closing about five minutes before the market closes, it'll look at some very basic indicators and, and buy at, kind of at the close. And so it'll throw out a market order. And, and it'll get us into, into that trade. The next, and, and so, and there are some cases where it'll throw out a target immediately and the target is going to be about four points from the entry. So about $200 is all that we're looking at. It'll also throw out a stop and the stop is about 17 points on the S and P. The, so, so the, I'll talk about the entry first. So the entry is really just, it's a momentum algorithm. And so it's, it's looking at really only two indicators to determine if it wants to get in or, or not. And once it triggers, it'll usually trigger for a few weeks to a few months. Like the current sequence that we're in right now has, uh, I was looking at the chart uh, before the interview, just cause I, I wanted to make sure I had the right number for you, but the current buy sequence that we're in really started on the 17th of October before the 17th of October, we were out of the market for a couple of weeks. So, so once it triggers though, once it begins triggering, it'll pretty much buy the close and then get out either the next day or a couple of days later, depending on another indicator. So, but I guess what I'm saying is we've really been long the S and P since uh, kind of mid October. And we've been able to capture this, this really strong rally as it's gone higher. But what we do though is we get in and get out. And so we we initially will get in a, at a market order. It'll throw out a stop. The stop is always 17 points, by the way. We never adjust the stop. Uh, it's the target that can change those. So sometimes it's four points, in which case it might get in and get out within uh, five minutes. Uh, usually though, it'll hold overnight and then it might get out at the open 
or it might hold for another day. And so you can think of it as every day, it's sort of re re-examining everything and determining, should I get out? Uh, like basically, should I get out now? Or should we just keep the stop in place and let it run another day? And it'll do that. And, and since, uh, just to give you an idea, since the mid, since mid-October, we've probably had maybe 30 to 40 S&P round trip trades. So we've kind of been in and out, in and out as the market's gone higher. A couple of questions about this. First of all, why 17 point stop? Yeah, so when I did the original optimization, the stop is an input. And so I basically just ran an optimization that said, I wanna try every stop between, I probably started with $200 all the way up to $2,000. And and I, I, I tend to optimize in a, in a pretty uh, broad stroke. So I, I won't do down to every tick. I'll do typically $200 increments, something like that. And so, um, so then when the, when the analysis is run and it schmoozes all the stops that we could use, the, uh, the $850 number was just kind of the sweet spot. Because the reality is that with, you know, it, there is a, it's not all science. I mean, there's an art to quantitative trading as well. Because there might be a case where, in, in fact, I think on this algo, if you use a bigger stop, it actually might do a little bit better on the back test. But the problem is, if you get to a $2,000 stop, then that can be pretty, pretty intense in the emotions, easy a quant. So, um, so you have to kind of decide, okay, well, what's the biggest stop I'm comfortable with Um and, and kind of land there. And, th- and I believe on, on that one, that's kind of where, where we landed on it or where I landed on it, the $850 number. Okay. Next question is, first thing I thought of when you said that you put a 17 handle stop in and then you put a four point um, target right away. <laughs> Those numbers yeah. right away, they don't, they don't add up. So I'm just curious why yeah. four points and over time are the amount of winners averaging to what equal to the 17 points yeah. more or less like how, talk to us about that yeah no they, I'm, I'm glad you asked that because it allows me to clarify that a little bit so the so so really when we get into a trade so of those 40 40 round trip trades we've had since kind of mid-october i would say um and don't hold me to any of this but roughly half of those probably got out at some point with some kind of target that was a four point target from some point, if that makes sense. So in other words, when we get in, it's okay. Let me use the last two trades we've had as that's actually a great example. So we, we bought the S and P yes. Uh, well, I don't know if I can give dates, but on the 14th we bought and we got out with a four point target pretty, pretty quickly. And the day before that same thing happened, we got in and got out within about five minutes, just because as the market closes, there's sometimes a lot of volatility in that last uh, kind of five minutes. But before that, we, we had a much bigger target, but it's, it's not that, so that, in other words, the code is either going to let it run for a day or throw out the four point target. And by the time it throws out the four point target, it might've already gone up a ton. So, um, so, yeah, so, but I guess another way for me to answer it is this. The win rate on that algorithm 
is um, approximately, if I can pull it up here. Yeah, so the percent profitable on, on this algo that we're talking about is about 75%. So it is a high win rate. And, and I know what, what, what everyone is thinking is, well, wait a second, though. You know, you need to win a lot more than that if you have a stop that big. But what, what isn't taken into account is that sometimes it'll hold for a week and then throw out that four-point target. And so we might be up already 40 points on the S&P and then get out with a 44-point gain, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, yeah. So the reason why we do the four-point, though, is if the market is trending sideways or about to go lower, the four-point target is exactly what we need because we want to be able to get in and get out quickly and not kind of hold and, and have it uh, eventually get stopped out. But, but this is all very particular to this strategy. I, I would never say that as a general idea, people should trade with a four-point target and a 17-point stop. I mean, that, uh, that would probably not work as, as its own strategy um, for the most part, <laughs> you know, unless your win rate was whatever, 95%. Well, thank you for clarifying all of, the, all of that for us. What can I say? Just awesome insight. I, I learned a lot today, but we're not done yet. Rapid fire questions next if you're ready for those. Yeah. All right, everybody. Our rapid fire segment is sponsored by Trading Technologies. Trade the global markets with TT. They are the world's fastest commercially available futures trading platform. Now with integrated tools for advanced options trading, cryptocurrencies, and trade surveillance. You can try it now for free at tryttnow.com. Richard, first question for you. What traders influenced your life the most and why? Yeah, I would say Richard Dennis, uh, really because the, the turtle, kind of the turtle books that were put out a few years ago, it's probably been about 10 years now, but those, those really impacted me and, and got me pointed in the direction of quantitative trading. What was one of the hardest things for you to overcome in trading? I would definitely say the emotions, fear and greed. How has your trading process evolved over the years? Yeah, so we've gone from a, a, a discretionary to an algorithmic. What is one attribute that you believe every trader should have? The risk of being incredibly cliche, I would say patience. Favorite book about trading? The Complete Turtle Trader. Uh, possibly the Market Wizards book as well. If you had to pick a profession other than trading, what would it be? I would be a logic design engineer. What's the best piece of advice that you received about trading? Yeah, so I think one of the quotes from Richard Dennis that I, I always loved, and especially when I started uh, doing the quantitative trading, it's this quote that he had. He said, I always say that you could publish my trading rules in the newspaper and no one would follow them. The key is consistency and discipline. Almost anybody can make up a list of rules that are 80% as good as what we taught our people. So in other words, uh, you know, it, it comes back to the emotions. It's, it's really hard to stick to any system. And so it's just a reminder to me that, uh, that at least for my style of trading, algorithmic kind of helps with that um, to let the, let, let the computer place the trade. So I don't have to worry about at least that part of the discipline. If you could go back in time and give the younger you a piece of advice, what would it be? 
Yeah, it would be to stop chasing after the perfect system, that there's no such thing as a holy grail of trading. That I think searching for a perfect holy grail trading system can really cause you to overlook some otherwise really good systems that, that probably will do well over time. If you had an elevator pitch me your edge in trading, what would you say? Yeah, we follow an algorithmic approach to trading and includes going long the S&P and also long the 10-year through a combination of swing and day trades. And we also do go short the S&P on day trades on occasion. Um, this approach, it really tends to trade against our own emotions, which I think is one of the most successful. And really all I mean by that is sometimes the, the best trade for any circumstance is going to be one that can be emotionally difficult to make. You know, it's, it's the buying a big gap up as opposed to shorting it. And um, yeah, so I think that's one reason why we've been successful is, is letting the, the, the computer in essence place those trades for us. Last question for today. Favorite thing to do when you're not trading? Yeah, I love movies and of course time with, with my family. But yeah, we, and you know, combining those is also always fun. So where can people find you on Twitter and give us a website to check out? Yeah. Our Twitter, Twitter handle handle is algos underscore trading. And our website is algorithmictrading.net. Quickly tell everybody what they'll see when they go to algorithmictrading.net. Yeah. When you go to our website, you'll see kind of a homepage, but what, what you pretty quickly will want to go to is the trading systems pages. And we, we haven't broken down into the four systems that we offer, the pro S&P crusher, swing trader and wave trader. But you'll also see various videos. We have um, some stuff to help with your due diligence, uh, FAQ, you know, some of the more common stuff. What can I say, Richard? This was very insightful. Thank you so much for sharing the information uh, about your journey and, and becoming going from a discretionary trader to a quantitative algorithmic trader. It was really just awesome. Thank you so much for joining me on Futures Radio Show. Thank you for having me. really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to Futures Radio Show. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review on iTunes. You can listen to all of our episodes on futuresradioshow.com, iTunes, YouTube, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher.